As I prepared to study the Doctrine and Covenants this year, I found myself wishing that someone would just give me a little refresher. What should I know going into my study? How can I best get the most out of this year's Come Follow Me? What was going on in the world as these revelations were being received? Who are people that I should be excited to meet in the Doctrine and Covenants? Now, I'm well aware that All In is not a Come Follow Me podcast, and you didn't come here for this, so I I wanted to make listening to it totally up to you. If you, like me, wish you had someone to just get you a little hyped for this year's study, stick around for this special bonus episode. Casey Paul Griffiths is a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. He teaches and researches Latter-day Saint history dealing with controversial and lesser-known stories among the saints. He holds a master's degree and PhD in education from BYU, where he is a popular teacher and presenter. He has taught at Education Week, especially for youth and the Mormon History Association. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so excited to have Casey Griffiths with me today. Casey, welcome. Thank you, Morgan. Great to be here. Well, this is this is a treat, and I have been excited about it, not only because I'm excited to talk to you, Casey, but I think also because I've been reading and listening to podcasts and watching videos about the Doctrine and Covenants, and it just kind of got me excited. I think up to that point, before I started, you know, kind of digging in this year, leading up to it, it's kind of, there's kind of like a, oh, we're done with the Book of Mormon. This is kind of a bummer because we all love the Book of Mormon so much. And then I think a lot of us, the Doctrine and Covenants can feel a little bit daunting studying the Doctrine and Covenants. So why do you think that people might feel a little bit daunted by the task that lies before us this year and come follow me? What, what lends itself to that? Well, the Book of Mormon is very user-friendly, right? There's a reason why when we send missionaries out, the first book that they hand to them is the Book of Mormon. It's it's all prepared. It's been neatly edited and put together. And it's just something that a person can pick up and be engaged in the story and go all the way through. Uh, the Doctrine and Covenants is a little bit more messy, but for a good reason. It's because we're in the middle of the story of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, if you look at the Book of Mormon, for instance, it takes place over a thousand years, and you jump from Nephi to King Mosiah to Alma and so on and so forth. Now imagine being Alma in the middle of the story and having to make sense of all the events that surround you and all the complexity. The Book of Mormon was put together by one of the most gifted writers of all time, and he carefully selected and edited the material, and then usually put a nice little moral lesson at the end of the story to put a bow on it. You're not going to find that uh, kind of simplicity in the Doctrine and Covenants, but that's not a bad thing. In a lot of ways, that's a wonderful thing. Because um, the Book of Mormon serves its purpose in teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a very simple, straightforward way. But the world that you and I live in, and the world that Joseph Smith and the early saints lived in, was full of complex situations and, and conflict and things that weren't as easily resolved, things that weren't always black and white, uh, but that the saints had to use revelation and their own common sense to negotiate. And in that sense, the Doctrine and Covenants is really, really valuable because you get this 
feeling that it's real life, that what is happening here is an epic story for sure, as epic as the Book of Mormon ever was, but it contains that minutia and and that kind of day-to-day slice-of-life realness uh, that sometimes just couldn't be fit into a volume the size of the Book of Mormon. And that's the other thing, too, is the Doctrine and Covenants is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, when you study the Doctrine and Covenants, you're studying church history, and that means you're in, engaging with a documentary record that is thousands, maybe even millions of pages, and not just a, a couple hundred pages. So it's daunting, but I don't think anybody should be intimidated by that. They should rejoice in it. Yeah, I love that. I think it's interesting, Casey, as I was prepping for this podcast, I read some of the things or listened to some of the things that you've said about using church history as a missionary tool. And and so when you just said that about like the first book that we hand people is typically the Book of Mormon. I started thinking about that. And I think it's true. We we hand people the Book of Mormon and maybe we shy away from initially sharing the Doctrine and Covenants. And one thing that I found interesting this the past couple of weeks as I've been studying Come Follow Me is learning that initially they wanted to print 10,000 copies of the Book of Commandments. And that's what they wanted to share with people. They wanted to like put it on full blast. And I'm like, what were you thinking? But for you, why is church history something that we should be proud of? And how do we use it as a missionary tool? Because I think that's important in our approach to learning it this year. Great question. I mean, the Book of Mormon is is, is simple and straightforward. And yet there is this this misunderstanding in the church as to what the Doctrine and Covenants is. I've had people tell me that the Book of Mormon is for the world and the Doctrine and Covenants is for the church. And that's just not true. Doctrine and Covenants section one says, hearken unto the voice of the Lord, all people. The Doctrine and Covenants is for the world as well. Uh, the the analogy I would use is that the Book of Mormon is kind of like the, the entry-level course that teaches you the basics you need to know uh, to have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, to receive the basic ordinances. And then the Doctrine and Covenants is like going to college. Um, everything that you learn in the Doctrine and Covenants is essential, not just for church members, uh, but for everybody around the world. I mean, the Doctrine and Covenants is where we get our concepts of eternal families and uh, ordinance work for people that didn't have opportunities to receive ordinance. It helps us understand uh, the world that we live in right now and, and what's going on uh, around us right now better than any book that we have. And so I would say to church members that, yes, the, the Book of Mormon is the instrument the Lord designed to share the gospel, but we shouldn't hesitate at all to share uh, the doctrine and covenants. I mean, the the instructions to be baptized and the sacrament prayers are found in the doctrine and covenants. The basic way that the church operates, the basic instructions that we still follow, are in the doctrine and covenants. And if we don't have a have a clear understanding of what the revelations that Joseph Smith said, we really don't have the wherewithal to run or operate the church today. That's so interesting. And, and I think, you know, you were talking about the, the story of the Doctrine and Covenants, and you said it is an epic story. But I think that it's so important for us to see ourselves as part of that epic story. If we leave ourselves out of it, I think it feels a little bit less epic. And, and we also start to, we kind of disregard the fact that, like you said, the Book of Mormon is a completed story and ours is still a work in progress. 
I am curious when we look at the doctrine and covenants, and as we go through this year, I feel like one one thing, like you just said, you know, there are scriptures that we know well from the doctrine and covenants, and there are passages that we refer to when when performing different ordinances and things, but. I think we often don't really look at the context. So how important would you say, Casey, that understanding the context in which the revelation was received is in our study of the Doctrine and Covenants? Oh, it's, 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 it's absolutely critical. And that, that is one area where the Doctrine and Covenants is more challenging than the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon gives you context, tells you a nice, clear story. In the Doctrine and Covenants, the revelations are there, and usually there's there's a little italicized paragraph that gives you the basics of the when and the where and the who, but there's so much depth behind that story uh, that can be explored. Like, uh, take section 25 for the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a revelation to Emma Smith. Emma. Yeah. Life. Well, we, we know the date, we know the place, but the reason why that revelation is given is, is so much more meaningful. Emma is baptized and joins the church in the summer of 1830 after the church is organized. But before she can be confirmed a member of the church, they would hold a whole separate confirmation meeting a day or two after a person's baptism. Joseph Smith was arrested and taken away by these people that were intent on destroying the church. And the real problem here is some of these people are Emma's relatives. Um, Emma's uncle was the ringleader of the persecutions that happened around this time. And as soon as Joseph is, is exonerated in one court, he's arrested again and dragged to another court. I mean, a lawyer that worked with Joseph and Emma during this time said that he came to her house and she was just dissolved in tears, that she felt like, I got baptized and I joined the true church. And all all of a sudden, everything went hay- haywire before I could even be confirmed. And so the revelation that was given to her on that occasion it has a lot deeper meaning if you understand the kind of acute emotional distress that Emma's going through. I mean, she's literally being asked to choose between her faith and her marriage and her family. It's about a month after that revelation's received that Joseph and Emma move away from where Emma's family is and where she grew up, and she never has the opportunity to come back. She never sees her dad again, for instance. So when the Lord says to Emma, go with your husband at the time of his going, I mean, she is dealing with some really poignant, uh, poignant emotions. She's, she's giving up the life that she's always known for her faith and, and her husband. And again, that is a, a, a whole level of complexity and depth that you don't necessarily see on the pages of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you have a book alongside of it like Saints, that helps a lot. If you can use some of the great online resources the church has prepared or other organizations, it can help you kind of appreciate how deep those stories are. And the wonderful thing is, too, is we have accounts directly from Emma about what was happening around that time and what her feelings are. Uh, I love the Book of Mormon, but I always joke with my students that there are five women mentioned by name in the Book of Mormon. There's there's Eve, uh, Sariah, Mary, Abish and the harlot Isabel. (laughs) And that's it. Uh, When you study church history, you have thousands of faithful women uh, to study and identify with and and to choose as your, your spiritual mentors on your road to becoming like Jesus Christ. 
That's so cool. I love that so much. I want to, while we're talking about context, I want to back up a little bit. And I'm interested, Casey, in your interest and love for church history and for the Doctrine and Covenants, because I feel like I've kind of taken that out of context now. (laughs) I love the Doctrine and Covenants because of the complexity of the context. Let me put it this way. I, I love the New Testament and I I love the Book of Mormon, but when I read the New Testament, I, I think I maybe identify more with Peter than I do with Christ. I mean, I want to be like Christ, but uh, he's perfect. Uh, Peter is kind of a screw-up, right? He, he, he can't walk on water, and he, he gets rebuked by the Savior all the time. And honestly, the passage of the Book of Mormon that Nephi wrote that I like the best is when Nephi is saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Sometimes, because Scripture had to be condensed and only the the key events were placed in there, we lose that level of humanity. In church history, that is absolutely evident. I mean, you can see letters that Joseph Smith wrote when he was really discouraged. Or you can read about the Colesville saints having to sell their farms and houses and wondering like where their next meal is going to come from. Or you can read about a dynamic woman like Joseph Smith's mom. I love uh, Joseph Smith's mom, Lucy Back Smith. She is the one that kind of like takes over when the going gets tough and stands up and gives everybody the rousing speech that gets them to pick up their stuff and move on to the next destination. There's, there's just all these different levels of complexity you can interact with. My comparison would be that, you know, we, we read the Book of Mormon in black and white because they had, they, they had so much space. Mormon apologizes continually by saying, I can't put one hundredth of what I have on here. We, we watch the Doctrine and Covenants in Technicolor. If you pick up a journal or one of those supplementary resources, uh, a person who only appears in one or two passages becomes so rich and, and involving. And it's just a story that it's really easy uh, to get caught up in. So would you say that you have always loved the Doctrine and Covenants or was there like a pivotal moment in which you kind of came to love it or a certain reading of it? (laughs) On my mission, uh, this is the answer everybody gives, right? But um, on my mission, I, I would usually, in my personal study in the morning, read the Book of Mormon and then read uh, the Institute Manual called Church History in the Fullness of Times, which was church history. I have met the people that wrote that because I was a curriculum writer for a little while and just thank them uh, for the wonderful job they did crafting this beautiful story and using all these uh, different sources to kind of cook up a good meal uh, that was involving, that uh, that tells the story of not only prominent men, as the scriptures do so well, but prominent women. And even better than that, an international story. Um, most scripture takes place in a small geographic area, you know, in and around Israel. Uh, the New Testament, you get the whole Mediterranean, but not much more than that. Church history is a story that takes place in multiple uh, countries, in different climates, at different times, and that's still going on. A friend of mine, Tonalyn Rutherford, this wonderful historian, she, she likes to say it's 1830 in the church somewhere right now. And I remember reading about missionaries getting chased off by ministers in the 1830s. And then two years ago, I went to Kiribati, which is this little tiny island country in the Pacific, and talking to the missionaries there and them talking about having ministers chase them off their land or uh, casting out devils. I mean, it's 
it's such a cool story that's so expansive and that has so many points of entry. A person can look at it and say, hey, uh, I'm an American. I want to hear how the gospel works for an American. Or I'm a Tahitian. I want to hear what it was like when the gospel came to my country. It's just so broad and, and exciting. And like I said, beautiful because we don't just have the black and white portrayal of these individuals. We can see them in their weakness, in their greatness, in their glory, and in their sorrow. And to me, that's just really, really helpful. Sometimes even a guy like Nephi, I look and say, I I can't do what he did. But a guy like Joseph Smith, you know, I can read his journals and say, okay, he he got into uh, fights with his brothers sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes his family didn't get along. That's encouraging to me because I think he turned out pretty well. And I'd like to think that gives me the same hope as well. Yeah. You mentioned 1830. And I want to kind of go back to 1820 to 1830. What do you feel like we need to, as we approach and kind of enter into the Doctrine and Covenants this year, what do we need to understand about the world that Joseph and his contemporaries lived in? And then what do we also need to understand in terms of like the span of the Doctrine and Covenants and what's going on in the world when the book closes? Yeah, well, I mean, the last revelation of the Doctrine and Covenants is official declaration too, which was received in 1978. I mean, that's the year I was born. So a, a, a big span, but scripturally, it's relatively small. The Book of Mormon covers a thousand years. So far, we've got about 200 in in the Doctrine and Covenants. One phrase I use with my classes and that historians like to use a lot is the past is a foreign country. Every one of us has had the experience where you go to a different country or maybe just a different state or a different town, and they do things differently there. They, they think differently. I'd like to think that the light of Christ gives us all universal values, but the norms and, and the societal mores are different. So when you read Joseph Smith history, for instance, try and transport yourself back to 1820. Find out a little bit about the culture uh, that Joseph Smith grew up in. A good example of this would be the last couple of years, a lot of people in the church have been thrown off a little bit because of seer stones in the narrative. Joseph Smith used seer stones. And not only the Nephite interpreters that came with the Book of Mormon, but apparently a seer stone that he possessed. Well, seer stones seem really strange to a person in 21st century America. But the question we have to ask is, was it strange to a person who lived in 19th century America, particularly uh, on the frontier where Joseph Smith lived? And the answer is, it really wasn't. I mean, they used divining rods and seer stones, and they had this kind of subculture of folk magic that was a, a normal part of their everyday life. In fact, the more I started to study this culture of folk magic, the more I realized that it's still present. I mean, it never really went away. We just sort of didn't see that it was there the whole time. And I would say anybody reading the Doctrine and Covenants needs to, well, not just the Doctrine and Covenants, any scripture, do a little bit of extra work uh, to understand what life was like for them and see it through that perspective. Uh, In the opening section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says, I speak to people according to their own understanding and after the manner of their language. And language doesn't just mean English or Hebrew or Greek. It means their cultural language. It means their scientific understanding. Uh, The Doctrine and Covenants talks more in depth about the nature of the universe because it's post-enlightenment. It's after 
uh, we've discovered the scientific method. So when God describes creation of the nature of man in the Doctrine and Covenants, he talks a little bit differently than he does in the book of Genesis, because he's speaking our language, basically, in the cultural context we exist in. Yeah. How do we, you said, you know, you have to do a little bit of extra work and you've mentioned a few things that can be helpful. Are there any other things, Casey, as we kind of start to dig into this doctrine and covenants year that you would recommend in terms of what's, what's been the most helpful to you? The church has done an outstanding job uh, producing resources for church history and free resources too. Everybody has Gospel Library. I would use that little church history tab a lot uh, this year as you study the Doctrine and Covenants. All the accounts of the first vision are there. Uh, there's an encyclopedic listing of articles on church history. So if a person wants to know about the relationship of the church and the Masons, for instance, there's a great article there. For really difficult issues like Book of Mormon translation, or plural marriage, or race and the priesthood. There's a series of excellent essays, the Gospel Topics essays, that can kind of help you see the culture and know the ins and outs uh, of what was going on in those areas. A lot of people get tripped up, uh, not because they know too much, uh, it's because they know too little about what was going on back then. And those those resources are absolutely wonderful to help you. There's also a nice little book that's available for free called Revelations in Context. That will usually take a person in the Doctrine and Covenants and walk you through their story so that you know what's going on. Um, another one that I want to recommend is At the Pulpit. At the Pulpit came out and was for sale for 30 bucks a couple of years ago. Now it's in Gospel Library for free. It's Discourses of Women in the Restoration. And awesome discourses. Like you can hear Emma Smith's speech that she gave the day that the Relief Society was organized and how she said, we expect extraordinary occasions and pressing calls. Like she talked about going out into the river to rescue people that were drowning. Um, that's wonderful stuff. Now, beyond what the church has prepared, there's tons of good resources out there too. Come Follow Me has produced kind of this wonderful explosion of collaboration on on Facebook and social media. I know everybody's a little wary of social media, but if you get into the right groups, there's so much good stuff that's published by people out there. And then there's uh, people like the organization I work for. I work with Book of Mormon Central, and we just uh, set up a website called Doctrine and Covenant Central that has section-by-section section resources. Here's the historical context written by a guy like Steve Harper that really knows his stuff. There's verse-by-verse verse commentary. There's pictures of all locations. That's another great thing uh, about studying church history is a lot of people live, you know, a 20-minute drive away from a church history site. There's maps. There's, there's all kinds of interpretive sources that will help you kind of get the meaning of the passages and help you understand how they were interpreted by the saints then and how they're used by the leaders of the church and the saints today. I love that you brought up at the pulpit. I am a huge fan of that book. No, and it, it really is. And I think it's underrated. Um, I think that people kind of sometimes this is going to sound bad, not a knock on the people that think this, but I think sometimes people look at a book and they're like, oh, a, a collection of talks by women, like not really interested. And there are so many talks in that book that just blow my mind. Uh, the Theology of Suffering is one of the best talks that I think I've ever read. And so I think that I love that you brought that up. I wanted to ask you, Casey, as somebody that has spent a lot of time studying 
this cast of characters that will kind of come through the Doctrine and Covenants this year. And I love that you mentioned, you know, the, the contrast between the number of women that are talked about in the Book of Mormon versus the number of women that we'll have the chance to get to know this year. But male or female, who are some of the key characters that you think people should be excited to get to know this year? Um, boy, the first one that comes to mind is Emmeline Wells. I love Emmeline Wells. My daughter is named Emmeline after her. <laughs> Emmeline Wells is this young convert to the church, uh, gets married when she's about 14, which wasn't that uncommon back then, uh, moves to Nauvoo. And then her husband, well, her she moves to Nauvoo with her husband's family and her husband's family apostatize. And then her husband like leaves to seek his fortune and never comes back. So she's literally stranded as a widow at about 16 or 17 in Nauvoo. Uh, she enters into plural marriage and the complexities of that system. Uh, but all along the way, she has this incredible testimony. And she also has this beautiful perspective on women in the gospel and what they can do. Leonard Arrington said that if Emmeline Wells hadn't been a Latter-day Saint and be a, a plural wife, she would be recognized alongside Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton as one of the most important important voices for women's suffrage in the United States. It's sort of a travesty that she's not recognized more than she she was, but she does all this stuff, especially in her later life, to promote women's suffrage. She's the General Relief Society president. She's there from Joseph Smith to Heber J. Grant, spanning this epoch of time in the church. Uh, and, and she's just remarkable. Like, I'm always amazed when I read out the pulpit or other resources. Carolyn Manson's written a great biography of, of Emmeline Wells, for instance, and how articulate uh, and how intelligent uh, the women of the church were. Like, they were just really, really wonderful, outspoken defenders uh, of, of, of some really complex doctrines like plural marriage. And I think the early members of the church set a great example for this. Like, there's this there's this Q&A with Joseph Smith where someone writes in and says, is it not true that Joe Smith stole his wife? And Joseph Smith's answer was, she was of age at the time. Why don't you ask her? Kind of like, hey, why are you even asking me if she was stolen? Are you suggesting that women are just objects? Why don't you go and talk to her? She's a human being. There's this recognition of women as daughters of God and and subjects of exaltation that's inherent in the Doctrine and Covenants that I love and that I think needs to be expounded a little bit more. Now, if I'm thinking of a man, Parley P. Pratt is my favorite. <laughs> His uh, autobiography is so funny and so interesting and so up and down. He's the first uh, missionary in this dispensation to get chased by a dog, for instance. And his book reads like an Indiana Jones movie, like he's jumping off trains and dodging mobs and escaping from jail and doing all kinds of crazy, interesting stuff. And underneath it, he has this great sense of humor with everything that he encounters that just sort of helps him get through the day. But even he has his bad days. There's, there's this wonderful story told in Saints uh, where Parley, Parley loses his wife and then loses a lot of money in the Kirtland Safety Society. And he gives a speech that is very, very critical of Joseph Smith. Uh, and he is walking down the street in Kirtland when he sees this convert that he taught about six months before run up to him and say, Brother Parley, I've made it. I'm with the saints. And Parley takes him aside and says, you came at the wrong time. Joseph isn't a prophet anymore. And the convert gets in Parley P. Pratt's face and says, you told me he was a prophet six months ago. If he was a prophet, then he's a prophet now. You 
need to get back in line. Now, the convert is John Taylor, the third president of the church. Uh, but these two men have this pull, push and pull relationship where they just help each other stay on the path. And those stories are, are absolutely uplifting and beautiful. I mean, there's just... There's no bottom uh, to, to what you can explore. Like I said, you'll never really get to the bottom of church history. And that is something that delights me. There's something new to learn and a new story to, to go through. Right now, I'm, I'm writing a commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants, and I learn a dozen new things every day. And I'm just, after teaching the Doctrine and Covenants for 20 years, that, that delights me. I'm just so excited that there's more to know, more to learn, uh, and, and more to grow, to be honest. I love, Casey, that you mentioned that you have taught this for 20 years. And as I was thinking about our our interview today, I was thinking about the chance to talk to college students about these things and the importance of our understanding them. And I wondered for you, I think one of the coolest things I was just telling our team at LDS Living yesterday, that one of the coolest things to me about Come Follow Me is the way that I think it really sincerely has the power to change people's hearts and to have the gospel sink deeper into our souls than anything that that the church has done previously, in my opinion. And so for you, as you've worked with these young adults, how are you seeing kind of these, this focus on church history and more and more resources becoming available? What, what power does that have in a young person's life? And what do you anticipate being the, the kind of end result of this year's study of the Doctrine and Covenants? Well, I, I can't say enough good about President Nelson and, uh, and Come Follow Me. I mean, he's really taken scriptural literacy in the church to a new level. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. I, I think that's exactly what we needed. And President Nelson is exactly the prophet we need to lead us right now. Now, um, I teach young people. I, I've taught at BYU for six years. Before that, I was a seminary teacher, a curriculum writer. And they, I, I know that it's cliche for teachers to get up and say, you guys are much better than my generation. But I genuinely think that they are. And it's not just because they have access to all these resources and they're wonderful and inquisitive. Uh, it's because of the explosion of information that we've had. I mean, we sometimes talk about the internet and the dissemination of in information as a bad thing. And in some ways it is. We also can't deny that we're living in the golden age of church history. There have been more sources available and placed within our reach, just a few clicks away on your phone uh, than ever before in the history of the church. I mean, you carry around a little, a little device there that has the writings and teachings of almost every prophet that's ever lived on earth that we have record of. And my students, I would say, are better than I was when I was a college student. I'll even go so far as to say this. I started teaching as an adjunct at BYU in 2012, right when they changed the missionary age. Uh, and the net effect of that, as you know, was that a lot of young women that, that didn't serve previously went on a mission. I've seen the scriptural literacy of the young men and young women in my classes in the last 10 years increase exponentially. It's wonderful to see these, these return missionaries that are both male and female coming up and asking deep, searching questions about the gospel and finding those answers uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants. And, and honestly, sometimes the answer is there is no answer. 
I'd like to use uh, section 121, for instance, to say, why do bad things happen to good people? Joseph is thrown in Liberty Jail. And he's asking, where, oh God, where art thou? There's no place in that where the Savior says, this is the reason why this happened to you, other than when the Lord says, this is to give you experience. This is to help you become like me. And sometimes we, we have to face the adversity that we face and just kind of accept we might not know the answer to why this is happening in this life. But we know that the Lord loves us and that he wants us to gain experience and it's wonderful to see how that experience made Joseph Smith a more empathetic person. He writes this uh, letter to a, a sister in the church when he's in Liberty Jail and says, my heart will always be more tender than it was before I came here. That there's some people that when they go through adversity, it makes them more empathetic. It makes them more kind. Joseph Smith was that kind of person. Unfortunately, there's also other people in church history that go through persecutions and it doesn't make them more empathetic. And we learn as much from their cautionary example as we do from the positive examples in there. But like I said, there's there's someone that you can identify with uh, for sure, whether you're whether you're a young father or whether you're a, a woman that's struggling to know your place in the world, whether you're a new convert to the church or whether you're an eighth generation pioneer stock member, there's someone in the Doctrine and Covenants in church history that that is there for you, for you to identify with. Yeah. Just yesterday, we were talking on our team and, and one of the girls that I work with, she said that recently she had had kind of a concern come up about church history. And she said that she and her mom got Joseph Smith papers out and started going through it. And they were able to find the, the answer, something that resolved that concern for her. And I was so impressed, first of all, that like, that's where their minds went to, you know, let's pull this out and let's look at it. And I do think, you know, if we were to take advantage of everything, like you said, that we have in our pocket and really take, take full advantage of all the resources, we would be like, no, no surprise that, that we would be progressing in our testimonies of the gospel and becoming better disciples of Jesus Christ. Like I said, I'll just quote Rick Turley, who was the assistant church historian. Uh, and I said this before, he said, our worry in the church isn't that people know too much. It's that they know too little. It's, it's when you only know a few things and you make logical leaps and assumptions that you get into trouble. But when a person does exactly what your friend described, they open up the books and they dive deep and they search for the answers. The answers are there, um, but th the Lord requires effort on our part. We, we put in the work and he usually will point us towards the source uh, or the thing or the person that can help us reconcile our doubts and our feelings. And like I said, the worry that I have for, for my students um, isn't that I'm going to say something that throws them off the path. It's that they, they won't know about it, and later on they'll find out about it in the wrong context. Once you know the full context and the full story, most things in the history of the church make sense. Yeah. For sure. I appreciate that. My last question for you, Casey, is the question that we ask at the end of every episode of this podcast. And that is, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? <laughs> um, I love that question. And I'll say to me, it means recognizing your part in the story. I tell my students every semester, 
This isn't a story about some past people. This isn't the story of the Israelites or the Nephites or the Lamanites or the Christians that lived in Jesus Christ's time. This is our story. Uh, studying the Doctrine and Covenants is the difference between watching a really great movie and being in a really epic story. It is our story. Millennia from now, I don't know what form the Doctrine and Covenants is going to take, but it wouldn't be outlandish to have somebody point out and say, that's the story of the Latter-day Saints and the time right before Jesus returned to earth. That's our story. And being all in means that I take ownership in that, that I recognize that being born in the latter days is a privilege and also a responsibility, that I, I can't just read the scriptures and say, oh boy, those, those men and women back then were wonderful. I've got to do what I can to ensure that the gospel is, is getting to where it needs to be and that the poor and the needy are taken care of and that I'm doing everything I can to build the kingdom of God and to make the world a better place. It, it means that I'm not a bystander any longer. I'm not reading someone else's account of their life. I'm writing the story of Jesus Christ, his church, and his disciples in our time. And understanding that just changes the way you see the people around you and the purpose of your life. We, we have such a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, there's, there's a long way for us to go to get the earth ready before the Savior comes back. But it's so wonderful to be on earth during these times when the gospel has spread farther and further than it ever has in the history of the world and where we know more. I mean, when you think about the fact that there's probably never been more than two or three temples on the earth at any given moment prior to our dispensation. Now we're approaching the 200s. And they're in places like Thailand and Russia and Africa. And Kiribati is getting a temple. I mean, that, that, that brought me to tears at the last conference. This is a great time to be alive. And those that despair and talk about, hey, 2020 was a miserable year. Well, any year in the dispensation of the fullness of times is a wonderful historic year. And you want to recognize that not only are you part of that, but you have your own chapter of the story to write. That's so awesome. And I think as you were talking, the the phrase that came to my mind was we've got to get the water to the end of the row, right? And I think we all have a role to play in that and am grateful to be a part of it. And Casey, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much, Morgan. It's great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us for this special bonus episode. If you want to learn more from Casey, be sure to check out doctrineandcovenantcentral.org. You can also find great Come Follow Me insights every week on Deseret Bookshelf Plus through LDS Living's Sunday on Monday study group. Learn more by visiting ldsliving.com slash Sunday on Monday. We appreciate you spending extra time with us this week and we'll look forward to being with you again on Wednesday. Wednesday.